Hello and welcome back to Fossil Bonanza. My name is Andy Connolly and this is a podcast focused on unusual fossil sites from around the world called Fossil Lagerstätten. We look at these fossil sites, try to understand how these animals and plants got preserved, and all the cool and wonderful things we can learn about our ancient world. Now this is a very special episode for us and it's kind of a two-parter. This is the first episode in our series focused on amber. Yes, amber almost fantastical substance that has played a strong role in our cultural and scientific history. Now, the reason why this is a two-parter is because amber can be incredibly dense and a rather complicated subject, I figured that this first episode, this first part, will focus on amber itself, about how it's formed, how it preserves animals and plants. And then the second part will focus on our first amber site, in this case, the Dominican amber. It's going to be really great. So in this case, I won't be really focusing on any particular site. I'll just give some examples along the way. So definitely listen to this episode first before you go on to the Dominican Amber one. But this is going to be really great. Let's start off with the amber itself. So fossils in amber are called inclusions, and they remain one of the best preserved fossils in the entire world. Amber has really unique properties that uh, are great for halting decay, and it seems like the animals that are trapped in the amber are halted in stasis and seem to be ready to wake up again. The entombification of these creatures is so precise that you can even find mummified insect organs and even pollen and bacteria. Other more, quote, traditional ways of fossilizations can't even approach the level of lifelike quality that amber inclusions have obtained. Even in older times, many people were appreciated of these inclusions. And there's a stanza I particularly like by the 18th century English poet Alexander Pope, which goes, quote, Pretty, in amber to observe the forms of hairs or straws or dirt or grubs or worms. The things we know are neither rich nor rare, but wonder how the devil they got there. End quote. Wonder indeed. But we'll learn in this episode how the devil these insects got into the amber and why they are in amazing condition. We will look at its heights, its lows, and its overall impact in the scientific community. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Fossil Bonanza. Now, all amber is formed from resin, a rather viscous substance used by trees to patch open wounds. Whenever a tree may experience damage from high winds or an insect invasion, it exudes the resin to patch these wounds and ensure that no further damage or invaders take place. The resin also works very well as an insecticide, as not only can the chemicals be deadly, but they suffocate any would-be intruders from getting into the tree. The resin then hardens and acts as a scab for the wounded tree. Immediately, we begin to understand why amber is an excellent way to preserve fossils. Not only is there a high opportunity for insects, invasive or not, to be entombed, but the resin's solidifying properties means it can survive transport and burial. And it should be pointed out, before we go any further, that resin and sap are technically different from each other. 
even though they both come from trees. Sap is a watery substance that is full of sugars, and trees use the sap to deliver nutrients and sugars throughout its body. Maple syrup is actually derived from the sap of maple trees. Resin, on the other hand, is made from a tree's bark and is much thicker. And in fact, if you ever go hiking through a conifer forest, it's highly likely you have stumbled upon resin and even felt its highly sticky, pine-like aroma on the tree's bark. The resin is made of terpene chemicals, which give it unique properties. These terpene chemicals can act as a fingerprint for the tree, and many different kinds of tree species have their own unique concoction of these terpene chemicals. It actually takes a while for the viscous resin to transform into an amber gem. The transformation immediately begins once the resin has left the tree and is exposed to the air. Many of the resin's chemicals will slowly evaporate over time, while the rest will begin to link together in a process known as polymerization. This polymerization is what hardens the resin into amber. Before the resin can fully become amber, it reaches a stage called copal, which is sort of like a proto-amber. Copal is very similar to amber in that it's hard and can contain inclusions, but there are a few critical differences. For one thing, it's still undergoing polymerization, and as such, it can be melted at lower temperatures compared to amber. It also isn't as hard as amber, and it can be dissolved in many kinds of acids. Many people have actually been fooled into thinking they have an amber sample when in fact it's just a disguised copal. And the thing is, is that copal isn't as useful for paleontologists because they are relatively young, usually less than 50,000 years or so. Real amber takes much longer to form, and although there isn't a hard date of when that transformation is complete, when transformed, the amber is harder and can withstand higher temperatures and is more resilient to the acids. However, if the resin is exposed to the air for too long during polymerization, it can degrade and crack. The resin needs to be safely transported and buried somewhere to continue its transformation. That is why a lot of amber sites have been found in delta and lagoon deposits. Basically, in order for a resin to become a protected amber, it needs to drip off a tree or fall down onto the ground on a broken branch, where it can be carried by a fast-moving current or river, and then eventually be buried by the sand and mud. This burying mud is air-sealed and allows the waterproof resin to continue its amberfication. There's also a problem with amber that we need to take into account. The trees that produce it. You see, not every tree can produce resin, and even the ones that do may not produce a lot of it. The trees that do produce a lot of resin are usually found in tropical areas, possibly due to the high amount of invasive insects and fungi, and the prominence of tropical storms that can break branches. As such, we are seeing very specific circumstances for amber lagerstatten to happen. There needs to be an abundance of trees that can produce a high amount of resin who live near a delta or a river that can quickly transport and bury the resin so it can become amber. These are very rare circumstances, which seems fitting given that these are among the best fossils in the entire world. We'll briefly mention a few global amber sites that satisfy these conditions, but I want to talk about one other important piece to our Lagerstadt puzzle, and that's our inclusions, the poor little critters who get stuck in the resin. So, one of the running themes on this show is fossilization bias, that not every type of animal or plant in an ecosystem will get preserved. 
Fossilization usually favors animals with hard parts located near areas that can bury them. Even our previous Lagerstatten demonstrated some form of bias despite their amazing fossils. The underwater mudslide in Beecher's trilobite bed only buried animals living on the sea floor, while the Posidonia shale only fossilized creatures who could swim or float in the open waters. The same thing is true for our amber fossils. Obviously, size is going to be the first factor here that eliminates who can become an amber inclusion. If you're big enough, you can easily escape the resin, even if you find yourself semi-trapped by it. An absolutely huge proportion of animal inclusions are less than one inch long, so it's no longer that a lot of them are arthropods like insects, spiders, and millipedes. It's very rare to find vertebrate inclusions, and when you do, it's just a portion of them, like a body part of a feather or scales. Also, as mentioned before, the trees that are likely to produce amber are found in tropical rainforests. So you're eliminating animals and plants that can be found in other habitats like grasslands. Even then, there are many microhabitats that reside in tropical rainforests, which is pretty wonderful. Animals may specialize to live in just the trees, or solely in the ground, in the ground itself, and anywhere in between. I encourage you all that next time you're in a park or even in your own backyard to observe a tree for a few minutes and then observe the ground nearby and see how animals and plants differ even when they're 15 feet apart. The Dominican Republic amber is a fantastic example of this. Even though there are over 800 species of modern butterflies and is the third most species-rich insect on the island, there are only seven species of it known so far from amber. This is probably because they just don't regularly interact with the resin trees. Meanwhile, ants make up 26% of all the amber inclusions due to their frequent crawling up and down the tree. And then, of course, you have to take into account geologic time. Although resin has been found up to 300 million years old, it didn't really become abundant until about 120 million years ago during the age of dinosaurs. Why the sudden rise? Well, although there is some discussion on the matter, it may be tied to the evolution of wood-boring insects. If there's more intruders, that means you need to find ways to fight them off, which means you produce more resin. All this means that we have a very, very focused lens on our inclusions. Yes, the animals and plants may not wholly represent the world they live in, but dang it, are they just not the most wonderful fossils out there. Let's dive into what it takes for an insect to become immortalized in amber. In general, one of the best ways for an organism to become a fossil is to remove it from the environment as fast as you can. You want to minimize the time between an animal's death to its burial so you can preserve as much of it as you can. For many burrowing environments, this can take several days to hundreds of years before the animal remains are submerged. Resin can do this in minutes. As an insect, say an ant, is crawling on a tree, it walks across the resin and almost immediately becomes stuck in the viscous substance. While struggling in its gooey deathbed, another wave of resin buries it completely and submerges it. The ant dies through either suffocation, or if it's only partially submerged, through dehydration and exhaustion. Immediately, the resin begins its amberfication, and the ant begins its fossilization. Resin is incredibly good for decay prevention. 
I already mentioned before that resin is waterproof, but some resin have antifungal or antibacterial properties that prevent the tiny microbes from infiltrating and growing within its golden walls. But not all resin have this. I actually came across a really cool example of a fungi growing off of an insect while it was still inside the amber. That is pretty neat. It's likely that the fungi was already leaching on the insect by the time the resin submerged it. The fungi continued to grow off its now dead host before it succumbed to its oxygen-deprived resinic environment. Very cool. However, in some cases, the resin may be too good at entumification. If an insect is quickly submerged, it can go through a process called autolysis. The insect's own cells and bacteria begin to break down the internal cells and tissues. When the resin seeps into the insect, it reacts with the internal soupy fluids and creates a bubbly sphere around the insect. The resulting process leaves a three-dimensional hollow cast of the insect. Fortunately, there is a way for nature to prevent autolysis from happening. If the insect is only partially submerged and dies before another wave of resin buries it, it can dehydrate to the surrounding environment. The lack of water halts any kind of bacteria activity, which may destroy the internal organs. Once the resin submerges it, the insect will be mummified with its internal organs still in place. This is when Amber's astonishing potential of fossilization occurs. If the tissue compounds are relatively stable, we can detect the likes of organs like spider book lungs, liver, or spinning glands. We can even identify cell organelles like mitochondria, ribosomes, and cell nuclei, which is absolutely insane. Which leads me to the T-Rex in the room. The million-dollar question, can Amber preserve DNA? To give an unsatisfying answer, it likely does not. DNA is highly unstable, and even in the best of the best conditions, it's rare to find DNA that's over 100,000 years old. In the 90s, during the Jurassic Park heyday, there were a number of publications saying scientists were able to extract DNA from insects millions of years ago, but these results have since not been replicated and were likely due to lab error. Even for Amber's incredible preservation, it's still not the, the most perfect thing out there. Nothing is perfect in preserving organisms. Uh, because in this case, Amber can still be susceptible to gases that may permeate through its body. There are still other liquids that can seep through it as well. And DNA in general is just highly unstable. It's just Without any kind of major upkeep or care from its live host, the, the DNA just falls apart rather easily. And maybe you can get a, like a few like samples from it, but like definitely not the complete strand of DNA like Jurassic Park showed. And even then, trying to get DNA from a 100,000-year specimen, much less one that's 65 million years old, is probably impossible, at least for our modern technology. So we'll see. This could change in the future, but I wouldn't hold your breath for now. There's actually a really cool study that I will link uh, in relation to this called Problems of Reproducibility. Does Geologically Ancient DNA Survive in Amber-Preserved Insects? And they actually used Dominican Amber for this research, and we'll, we'll go into Dominican Amber more next episode, but that's a relatively young amber compared to other amber sites at about 16 million years or so. So 
even when you have younger amber fossils that happen way after the end of dinosaurs, it's still highly, highly, highly unlikely that you could get any kind of notably complete DNA from it. And in fact, DNA and other organic compounds like proteins in general do not have a stable shell life, even in the comforts of an amber home. The body constantly needs to update, fix, and mend these broken and degraded molecules to keep itself functional. Many of these compounds just break down over time, while others, like the hard exoskeleton of insects, remain strong and relatively unchanged for millions of years. So even in amber, despite its near-perfect conditions of delaying decomposition, can only do so much for its imprisoned inclusions. So as we've seen, amber deposits just go all in for having high-quality fossils. They're the definition of a Konservat Lagerstätten, or a fossil site with excellently preserved fossils. The trade-off being that A, only certain kinds of organisms can become fossils, and B, there are relatively few amber sites found throughout the world. Even profitable amber sites struggle to produce inclusions, as a majority of the amber stones have nothing in them. One source I read dated from the 1990s said that there are hundreds of known global sites that produce amber, but only in trace quantities, and about 20 of them have an abundance of amber that can be mined. Even then, these 20 or so, from what I can tell, are overshadowed by four sites that dominate the amber literature. They are known as the Lebanon, Burmese, Baltic, and Dominican amber sites. These big four sites, again and again, are praised for their scientific significance and their amber abundance. The Dominican and Burmese sites in particular have seen a rush of new species identified every year, and keeping up with them is almost impossible. I actually set it up on my Google Scholar to get notifications for any new amber research papers, and it just they just keep coming. And it's just like, new insects, new insects, new insects. It just keeps it coming. It's, it's, it's incredible, and it's just, it's pretty overwhelming at times. Even then, the fossils all four of these sites contain are magnificent and gives us a critical look into our world's evolutionary history. Their importance cannot be understated. Now, in another time, we will look at the Lebanon, Burmese, and Baltic sites. But what we're going to do is instead, I'm going to end the episode here. It's a little bit shorter episode compared to the previous ones. But I kind of wanted to front load all of you with this information first before we get right into the amber site itself. Uh, in the meantime, though, I hope you enjoyed this short episode of Fossil Bonanza. Make sure to tune back in next time where we dive into the Dominican amber and learn about all the cool spiders, insects, parasites, and so forth that are preserved within its wonderful stones. It's going to be wonderful. I think it's, I think it's going to be a blast. And if you want to learn more about Fossil Lagerstätten in general, Make sure to check out the website of the same name, FossilBonanza.com. And also, I'll be uploading a transcript of this episode as well onto my website. So if you know anyone that may benefit from a transcript of this episode, make sure to send them my way. Uh, hey, everyone. So this is Andy Meef, uh day before this episode goes out. I recorded most of this episode about a month ago, but I actually wanted to add in a quick little thing here at the end of this episode. 
Uh, recently, I just passed 100 downloads for Fossil Bonanza, which is excellent. Thank you to everyone here who has listened, who has shared this. Thank you to my friends and family who have supported me. Uh, this is really great. And I've been seeing all the people who have been listening in across the U.S., uh, across different European countries. I've seen a few from Canada as well. That was really excellent. Thank you so much. I actually recently got a uh, little bit of a boost as well. The uh, popular fossil podcast, PaleoCast, actually uh, put my podcast on a list of fossil podcasts to check out on their website. I recently retweeted that. Uh, so if you go to my Twitter account, you'll see that list of fossil podcasts and other uh, shows you should check out as well. I've actually begun to listen to some of them too, which is pretty excellent. Uh, so again, thank you everyone for listening. I do appreciate all your love and support. It's really been giving me a great boost of confidence and makes me feel really happy about the people are listening in. But I love you all so much and I'm looking forward to everyone tuning in next time to listening about the Dominican Amber. It's going to be great. I have some cool stuff in plan for you all. All right, check you out next time.